0: And just as we begin, it's important to just kind of bring us up to speed on what we've been talking about. You can see from the series title on the front of your order of service that Romans is Paul unpacking the good news of God's grace, God's grace that has broken into a world that has been shattered by sin, the sin of our father Adam, but God has broken into that fallen world and dealt perfectly with our sin through justification, through the work of Jesus, we can be declared righteous and uh, no longer sin's penalty against us. But Paul says that this great news of God's grace is about more than just the forgiveness of sins. God is also at work in us restoring what has been lost in the fall. Uh, He is setting us free from the power of sin that we experienced when we were in Adam. And he's now transforming us inwardly, transforming us inwardly so that we can be people who live more and more how we were made to live. And that renewal really becomes Paul's focus as we move into (laughs) chapter 12. Uh, We think of those words that many of us may know from chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where Paul speaks about how God's purpose for us is that we could, regardless of where we are or what we are doing, live as living sacrifices, worshipful sacrifices to God himself. And that the transformation that God is doing in us inwardly through the renewal of our minds, especially as we heard in our prayer from Hank this morning, as we hear God's word, he uses it to change our ways of thinking so that we are transformed inwardly into people who more and more resemble the Lord Jesus. And uh, the last Sunday before Advent, the, the final Sunday in November, we looked at 21 imperatives that Paul gives to them, 21 commands, um, 21 tweets about the Christian life, basically, as Paul's just sending those things out. Uh, and, and in that, it's, it's an extensive list, um, but we could summarize it just as saying, God is working in us to change us into people who show genuine love from the inside, from the heart. He's changing us into people who live according to authentic virtue, where we actually love what is good and we hate what is evil. And he's making us into people who then serve God with heartfelt service, longing to live lives that are pleasing to him. And those commands continue into our passage today. But it takes a bit of a turn where Paul focuses really on a few specific questions that we find as we live the Christian life. And basically it's this. What does this transformed, Christ-like life look like in a world where evil is everywhere? What does it look like when people do evil to us? What does it look like when people treat us as enemies? Now I want to say as we begin that this passage is going to be convicting for all of us. I don't know how, as I read it in just a few moments, or as you heard Jesus' words in Luke chapter 6, it doesn't just slap us in the face with the high calling of what God asks of his people. And so all of us will be convicted and challenged as we look at this. But while um, that's true for all of us, for some of us it may be especially hard to hear. Because for some of us, it brings up a lot of questions about your unique experiences that you're going through with people who treat you as um, an enemy, with people who are doing harm to you, with people who are doing evil against you. And I just want to start by saying that while everything in this passage that we're going to talk about is good and right and true from God's word, It's also important to understand that it is not all that the Bible has to say about anyone's situation, and it's not all that the Bible has to say about your particular situation, especially when it comes to wisely responding to those who have harmed us. And so if it sounds impossible as we unpack this, or if it raises all kinds of questions for you, I just want to invite you from the outset to hang with it if you're able, and then please come talk to me. Uh, Talk to one of the leaders. We have other people in the church who would love to talk with you about how this looks and works itself out in your particular situation. But with that said, I want to read our passage, and then we'll walk through it together as God's people. So our passage this morning is Romans 12, verses 17 to 21. If you haven't turned there already, you can find it in the Pew Bible on page 948. It's also printed in your order of service on page 9. But it says this. This is God's word. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray once more and ask God's help as we consider this word. Our Father in heaven, we ask that this morning, as we pause to consider your word as it's preached to us, that you would give us a glimpse of yourself, that you would help us to better understand who you are, what your heart is, especially in regards to justice, and what your promises are for us as your people. We pray that as your word is preached, you would show us the living one, the Lord Jesus, and your love to us in him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, we'll look at this passage this morning in three relatively simple points, I think. First of all, we're going to consider what we're not to do. Second, we'll consider what we're to do instead. And then third, we'll see why we can do it. So what we're not to do, what we're supposed to do instead, and then why we can even do this um, according to what God says. So first of all, let's consider what this section says about what we're not to do. Um, If you have your Bibles open, you'll notice that back in chapter 12, verse 14, Paul had already brought up these ideas a little bit. He said that we're not to curse those who persecute us. Uh, We're not to seek their injury. We're not to seek their harm. Now, as he resumes in verses 17 to 21, he continues with more examples of ways that this takes place. And so in verse 17, he says this, Repay no one evil for evil. Then we also see in verse 19, he adds, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. So those are the prohibitions that we see there. And it calls us to ask, What is it that Paul is forbidding? Well, first of all, Paul is not saying that evil should not be repaid. Notice that God himself says, He will repay evil. So repaying evil is not in and of itself a wrong thing. He's also not saying that vengeance shouldn't take place. The term vengeance or avenging literally just means to return injury for injury, to return harm for harm. It's a way of speaking about justice. And in our text, God himself says that he will take vengeance. Vengeance is mine, he says. And so vengeance in and of itself, repaying evil, is not something that's wrong or sinful to do. It's good and right to pursue justice for wrongs that have been done. That's part of our ethic as Christians. It's part of what all of Scripture is calling us to do. And we see, and we'll talk more about this next week, God even authorizes certain institutions like the state to assist in that pursuit of justice in this world, as imperfect even as that may be. And one of the things that we see as Christians especially is that God calls us to seek justice and that things are done rightly, for those who can't seek it for themselves and to those for whom justice is usually expressed unjustly. And so all of this pursuit of justice is good and right for us as believers, but yet Paul is prohibiting something. And what is that? The problem that Paul is addressing here is how we pursue justice and where we draw the line of our pursuit of justice, isn't it? Avenging ourselves, which is what he talks about, means more than just seeking justice. It means retaliating for an injury against us. And notice that the command is not to avenge ourselves. Often when we seek justice for ourselves, it can slip into seeking of revenge. Often when harm and injury has been done to us, there's something that wells up inside of us that tends to cloud our sense of justice, the malice and bitterness that can so easily creep in. And so what happens sometimes when we are seeking justice for ourselves is that seeking justice becomes seeking revenge, Um, repaying that evil plus a bit more so you can feel what I have felt. Making sure that evil is paid for shifts into repaying evil with evil and doing wrong to another person in the name of justice. This impulse towards revenge, it's something that goes really deep. Um, It's actually something that we find very entertaining as people. It resonates powerfully with us. Um, Maybe this afternoon, you could think of how many stories or movies you know that are centered upon revenge, and how many movies do you know and love that are centered upon revenge that you love to watch, right? And I'm not saying that's wrong. Just see that it's not the whole story. Um, the Count of Monte Cristo, I mean, uh, anyhow, we, we uh, but think, Gladiator, Man on Fire, The Equalizer, even Princess Bride with Inigo Montoya, you killed my father, right? Prepare to die. That's seeking revenge. That's acting as an avenger in that sense for personal Part of why these stories resonate with us so deeply is because there's something good and right about them. As those who were created in God's image, we say yes to evil being dealt with, for wrongs being repaid. But there's a part of it that goes rogue sometimes, in us, doesn't it? And it's that part that says, I want you to suffer. Now, for honest, that line is actually hard to discern, isn't it? Even when we're adjudicating justice for another person. Even when we're acting on behalf of another and we see how they've been harmed, it can be hard for us to know when is this slipping into more than just justice? But that line is even harder to draw for ourselves, isn't it? And so God wants to protect us from getting caught up in all the evil of it. And as he says when he closes us out in verse 21, there's real potential for evil that's done to us to overcome us. And how does that happen? because it entices us to respond to evil with evil. And when that happens, justice does not prevail, it does not accomplish God's good purposes, and it leads to corrosive effects within us. And so the Christian life, as God holds it out for us, could be summarized as a life of non-retaliation toward our enemies. We're called not to retaliate. We're called not to seek revenge for wrong what's been done to us. So that's what we're not to do. Now, before we move on to what we're to do instead, I just want to address two things. One is this. Some of you may be sitting here today hearing this, and what's going through your mind is, <laughs> if you had any idea what has happened to me, you would not be saying these words. Or you may be hearing this, and and what's running through your head is, I have heard these verses thrown in my face so many times by the people who are mistreating me. And if that's the case, then I want you to understand and know that these words... These are not words from a harsh God who has not seen what you've suffered and knows your pain and hates the evil that is done to you. The Bible says more than just don't retaliate. There's so much more that needs to be considered when it comes to what that looks like in your situation, and especially what it looks like when it's another believer who's doing harm to us and using passages like this to control our actions. And so I just want to say that uh, to situate how we think about this prohibition. And so that's on the one hand. I'll get less emotional about the second one because it, it's just talking to myself. Um, the other thing that I think is important for us to think about is that it's easy for us to hear this call And miss the subtleties in our own hearts of these things. Even with me bringing up the illustration of of movies where people seek revenge and they just burn it all down, right? And we're like, is anything going to be left standing when they're done? And part of us is like, yes. We can hear a passage like this and say, well, I haven't blown up any buildings because of what someone did to me. So this doesn't really apply, Right. And what I want us to see is this subtle impulse in our own hearts that says it's my right to stick it to them is exactly what this is addressing. There's kind of this, I think of it as an innocuous way that I I find this. Darcy says it's far deeper than that, and she's right. But anyhow, my experience of it is it's no big deal. But when I'm driving on the road and I see someone going really fast and zigzagging, I become a vigilante, right? Who speeds up so that they can't get back in and get by and must go at the flow of pressure. and nurses says, knock it off, that's not it's just gonna get us killed. It's a part of it. So I am trying to fight against that. Now I just view that as oh, that's just driving strategy and I'm just being an agent of good in the world, and whatever I'm, I might rationalize it at. But at the end of the day, when I look at this passage. You know what's also partly there? I want them to suffer. They don't have a right to do this. It's my job to stick it to them. And it's interesting to just step back and look at how much this impulse might well up within our hearts when we're hurt by other people. And a lot of times the things that we do aren't things that would be shown in a movie. But we know ways we can stick it to others who hurt us. And that can be by a subtle jab with our words. That can be by a cold shoulder, a withdrawing, not returning a text. There's all kinds of ways that this wells up in our hearts. And this passage is an invitation to the fact that God wants us, wants to make us into people who are more like Jesus, who could. Actively seek justice his whole life and confront evil and yet was not a vengeful vigilante in any way and who loved his enemies and had compassion on those who were doing wrong and that even in his own death he was not crying out God stick it to them for what they've done. That's an amazing thing. God wants to work in us, isn't it? And so Part of what God has in mind for us is refraining from something. But as with really every ethic in the Christian life, it's also toward a positive and toward a good. There's there's a positive pursuit as well. And so that brings us to our second point. Not only is there what we're not to do, which is seek revenge, but secondly, what we're to do instead. And I just want us to to look at this passage a little. If, If we think back to verse 14, it says, don't curse those who persecute you. But what? But bless them. There's a corresponding good. Seek the the good from God for them. Verse 17, you can see the negative. Don't repay evil for evil. But then he goes on to say, instead, give thought to do what is honorable or what is good in the sight of all. Paul is saying that instead of retaliating... Here's something you can pursue instead. Thinking long and hard if there's anything good that you could be doing in their life that others would even notice and call good. And then he continues. Still, instead of repaying evil for evil, fighting back, verse 18 gives us another positive pursuit. Live peaceably with all if possible. And this means... That part of our pursuit is bringing to bear all that the Bible says about peace. Dealing with the parts of the situation that involve and depend upon us. And he says, peace won't always be possible, um, but it's something that we're called to pursue. Then as we come to verse 20, notice again the negative. Don't avenge yourself. Instead, see if there are ways that you can show kindness to the person who has wronged you. Feeding your enemy is a simple act of kindness that you would do to a stranger. Giving a drink is something you would do to one in need. And he's saying, are there things like that that you can do to those who have done evil against you? Now, can we just pause and acknowledge how hard that really is? If you've been a Christian for a while, we've heard things like this, right? Like, love your enemy. But when this meets real life, it's not easy and it chafes deeply against how we feel. Uh, This is not just an ethic of non-retaliation. It is one of actively loving our enemies. Um, often we think, well, if we can't get justice and if we can't punish them for what they've done, then at least we can just avoid them and at least we can just write them off. And Paul says, wait a minute, I want you to think about what it would mean to bless and love and show kindness. And while their treatment of us may definitely change the relationship and make that relationship much smaller, which could be necessary for wisdom and all kinds of things, we see that God is calling us to entertain the question, what does it mean for me to love my enemy? Now, uh, as we consider that's what we're to do, there are three things that I think are really important about how we do this. What we're called to do is love our enemy, but how do we do this? And the first one is really important, and I don't want you to miss it. We do this before God we do this before God. Another way you can say it is you do this with God defining the terms. Um, so write it however you'd like if you're taking notes. But as, as we look at this passage, you can hear phrases like do what is honorable, which another way to translate that that I think is even more helpful, do what is good in the sight of all. And we can think, okay, is Paul somehow talking about just relativism? Like we just take a poll of our neighborhood and whatever everyone else thinks is good We just do that. Or in these particular situations, someone has wronged us and we're supposed to think of the things that they would think are good for us to do to them. But remember, this is all in the context of Romans 12, 1 and 2, where God is at work renewing our minds so that we see things more and more how God sees them. And we know more and more what his moral will is for us in the situation. And so what this means is when we're in situations where people have done evil to us, people have acted as an enemy toward us, they often have their own ideas about what good you should do for them. But it's always the question of what does God say would be good for them and what is truly good for their soul. And then often... The things that, they, that are genuinely good for them, that the Bible holds out as good things, like bringing others into the situation, or seeking accountability, or not enabling them. they will often say those things are evil and unkind. And so that's why we have to do this before God, as God defines what good is, and as God defines what evil is. When it says do good to them and don't do evil and seek peace, It's what God calls good and refraining from what he calls evil and seeking what he calls genuine peace. And it may take lots of thought, creativity, and wisdom, and again, that's why it often takes a community to address these things well, but it won't be violating other parts of Scripture as we respond. And so this loving our enemy is something we do before God, but then secondly, we do this as a way of life. We do this as a way of life. This is something that I hadn't really seen in this passage beforehand. But these commands to give thought, to do what is good in the sight of all, and to live peaceably with all, these are broader commands that elsewhere in Scripture are just called to be part of the ordinary Christian life. And then they are brought in especially when others have harmed us. You know, it can be easy in a world that's filled with evil to shift to a posture of just fight it and attack it or to shift into a posture of just withdraw from it and condemn it from a distance. But what this and other passages in Timothy and in Titus in particular are showing us is part of a mature Christian life involves us taking time to give serious thought The things that you can do that are good and right, that your neighbors around you would also say are good and right. That's an interesting thing to think about. Part of a mature Christian life is not only having a clear understanding of the evil that's around us, but it's also thinking through how even with our differences and even with all these tensions, we can live at peace with our unbelieving neighbors if possible. As far as it depends on us. You know, we just went through holiday season, and that's often a time of bringing people into our lives who may think differently than us, whether it's family or friends or <clears throat> parties. And I don't know if you've had the experience, but as someone, as we're talking to someone else who views things differently, what can primarily be running through our mind is, Wrong, 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 disagree, disagree, disagree. How do I condemn, make sure they know that's wrong? Um, discerning those things is good. It's part of being really in the image of God. That, that's helpful. But what I was thinking about this week was this. So holidays are coming again in another year. What would it be like to sit down and to think about those people you will be sharing a table with and what things they believe are good, that you know that God also thinks are good. And you spend this year leaning into those things so that you can talk with them about those good things and affirm that good in them as well. That's part of what this passage is calling us to. This way of life that's thinking how I can pursue that good among all and that peace among all. And then when it comes to people have wronged us and harmed us, we already have that way of life and thinking and it's probably in a much more limited way, but we still see things of how we can move toward them in love. And so we do this before God. We do this as a way of life. And then finally in this point we do this like God does it. Loving our enemies sounds like a radically high calling, doesn't it? Um, But what I find comforting is that God is not asking us to do something that he doesn't do himself. It's not like, oh, I'll just have Christians do this really hard thing while I just sit up here and wait to come back into a state where we don't have to do hard things anymore. Jesus reminded us in Luke 6 that God Most High, the one who's so transcendent and above all wickedness, is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. In Matthew's account, Matthew reminds us that God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And so part of what helps us as we think about doing this is have you ever stopped and thought about how kind God is every day? You know... Think of all of the sin and hostility that comes before him constantly. You know, we can look at a social media feed and see someone's supposed to say, ooh, that's a lot of people, ooh, that hard to stomach or something like that. It's all in his feed, as it were, all the wickedness. And yet he still says out of his kindness, the sun will shine on you today even you who have raised your fist against me and are seeking to thwart my plans. I will send rain so that flowers can grow around you. I will bring you the blessing of people in your life who care about you. I will give you the joy of tasting things that bring delight and drinking things that are delightful. I'll let you feel what it's like to, to work as an image bearer and know you were made for something more. And that's all upon those who have no inclination toward him. And what this passage is saying is that God is at work in us by his spirit to help us become people like that, who can show that family resemblance to those who do evil around us. And so we've looked at what we're not to do, which is repay evil for evil. What we're to do instead, which is Love, show kindness, bless as we're able. But then finally, point number three is why we can do this. Why we can do this in the first place. At the center of this whole section, um, which is framed by talking of evil, there's a promise from God cited in the Old Testament, um, cited from the Old Testament. It's there in verse 19. Look, Look with me at verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I find it fascinating what Paul brings to us from God's word. He says, here's what you need to remember in a world filled with evil. And notice how it starts. Beloved. People loved by God, and that love is unshakable, Romans 8 told us. It can never be taken away. But beloved ones in an evil world, there's something that you can actively do in the face of so many things we have no control over. You can leave space for, you can allow a place for God's wrath. And the wrath that he is speaking of there is his end-time final judgment is really uh, what he's talking about. It's shorthand for that. Leaving room for God, making all things right, which involves both bringing salvation and bringing judgment. And so the call there is to choose to make space in our actions and responses to evil for God's wrath. And what he's saying here is that that does two things. First, God's perfect justice, God's wrath, It helps us endure injustice. It helps us endure injustice. Understanding and making room for the wrath of God is what enables us not to take things into our own hands and retaliate, especially when we experience injustice or partial justice here in this life. Because it says this vengeance is God's job. And there's a reason for this. He's the only one who can carry it out perfectly. None of us, even with the best laws in the land, will be able to carry out perfect justice in this life. We should pursue it, but compared to God's justice, he has the perfect knowledge of everything that took place, and he has the perfect character to discern what is truly right. And then you bring that all together, that he has the absolute power to sovereignly dispense a punishment that exactly fits the crime and rights the wrong way. You can't do that. And so, vengeance is God's job, he says. But then understand this. It's not just that God can do this. It's that he promises he will do this. Vengeance is mine. It's my job. I will repay. I've said it way back in Deuteronomy. It's being reinstituted in the New Testament. It is coming. There's no, it is my promise. And so in the face of the injustices of this life, part of what God wants us to hear is this. He won't forget any of the evil that has been done to you. He won't change his mind about what he's going to do in making it right. He won't transfer your case to someone else where justice gets overlooked. I will repay is the promise that God gives. Brothers and sisters, those who are beloved by God. I want us to think about what this really means. The command not to retaliate, it would be a wrong command for God to give us if it weren't for the promise of his justice. God would be immorally telling us to just let evil slide But he's not doing that. He's saying, leave room. Do what you can. But then leave room. Because it's his job. And he will carry it out. There's so much about the harm that happens in this life that we don't now see clearly or understand. But the reason God can allow what he does is because his coming justice is so perfect that every wrong will be perfectly accounted for and punished, not one drop of suffering overlooked. That's amazing for us to think about. And so God's perfect justice helps us endure injustice in this life as we leave room for the wrath of God. But then secondly, God's perfect justice, it frees us to love it frees us to love. You know, we might say, okay, I won't retaliate. I can see how that goes wrong. It's not good for me. But wait a minute. Be kind. Show them love. How do I know that's not just going to make things worse? How? What if that doesn't change them or bring about any good? Well, God says here that our kindness toward our enemy does something. And he uses a fascinating picture. It keeps burning coals upon their head. Kids, don't literally heap coals on anyone's head, okay? Uh, it's an image, and it's an image that, to be honest, is a little hard for us to understand. There's lots of discussion about exactly what it means, and I'm not going to go into all that. I just want to summarize for you what I think is the most helpful way to think about it. Uh, In the Old Testament, burning coals were a sign of God's judgment. And so that's kind of the language Paul's probably most likely picking up on. And I think what he is saying here is that you can do your acts of kindness and love to your enemy. Because at the end of the day, God is going to use that love and kindness to do one of two things. One is they might feel the sting, they might feel the burn of the goodness you're doing to them and it causes them to shake off those holes and turn and repent. That's the invitation that God gives through our good and loving actions. But if they don't, it piles up condemnation and judgment upon them that God will one day deal with. And you see what that does? It frees us up to ask the question, what does it mean to wisely love this person who has wronged me? And that may be a very small thing. Luke 6 says it might just be praying for those who are abusing you, not going anywhere near them. But in doing those things, I can know and trust that if I'm seeking to do that before God, he will use that act of goodness, either toward salvation or judgment, as part of his overall purposes. And so you see, either way, what Paul is telling us is this. In both not retaliating and leaving room for God's wrath and in actively loving, God is inviting us to trust his perfect justice. We do what we can and we leave room for his perfect response. And then as Paul wraps up, he finishes his thought in verse 21 by reminding us of this this overcoming evil with good that he's calling us to do, this is God's way. This is God's way. As we close, think with me about this for a moment. Ever since the garden, where wrong was done against a perfectly just God, what has God's response toward humanity been? It immediately was to leave space for goodness. Wasn't it To leave space and opportunity for him to show goodness to humanity and to bring about repentance and redemption, as well as maintain a future judgment. Ever since the garden, God has done good to humanity in so many ways. And what we celebrate Lord's Day after Lord's Day is that God, because of his love, has given us the greatest good by sending us his son. Jesus lived in an evil world, and he always did what was good and what was right. He confronted evil, and yet was also full of compassion and grace, and he gave his very life to overcome evil with good. In his death on the cross, he paid the price for every evil deed that we have done the ways that we have hurt and been an enemy toward others, and then the ways that we have failed to love them as God has loved us. Jesus bore the curse that we rightly deserved because of our evil, so that we could receive the eternal blessings of the reward that he earned. And what the cross clearly shows us then is our God is an enemy-loving God, isn't he? How have you responded to God's enemy love? Now, if you are wondering if you are still God's enemy because of your sin, if you still wonder, do I deserve his judgment, he invites you today to trust in what he has done for you in Jesus at the cross. And simply by believing that that was done for you while you were still God's enemy, you received the blessing of eternal life as his beloved child. But for those of us who already are his beloved children, who've experienced the goodness in our life of him overcoming our evil in the cross and now changing us to become less and less evil and promising that one day we will live in a world that's free from all evil. He's inviting us to join him in his ways. That by his grace and by his spirit's empowerment, to love and do good, to the world around us, until Christ returns, and we experience forever a world where all evil has been overcome by God's good purposes. Let's pray, that you would help us. Our Father in heaven, your word calls us to some very high things. But what's so amazing about you as our God is you only ask us to do things that not only you yourself do, but that you've promised to empower us to do by your spirit. And so encourage us and strengthen us with this wonderful vision of who you are making us to be. Give wisdom to us in our particular situations and pains. And help us as your people to grow in wisdom and love. While we live in an evil world, until one day you make all things right. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.